week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. In 1988, Eddie Plankert won the Tour of Flanders. Plankert was 29 years old and came from a cycling family. His brothers, Willie and Walter, had been massively successful cyclists in the 1970s. Willie had won the green jersey in the Tour de France, and Walter had won the Tour of Flanders. Eddie had had a great career before 1988, winning stages in all three Grand Tours and a number of semi-classics such as the E3 Prize and Het Volk. But he was still missing the big classic win on his Palmares, and coming from Nivelles in East Flanders, the Tour of Flanders was top of his agenda, especially having come so close in 1982 when he finished runner-up behind René Martins. In 1988, Plankert had strong teammates on his ADR team for the Tour of Flanders. Dirk de Maal, Fons de Wolf and a young Johan Museo were all present. But as the race unfolded, Plankert became more and more isolated from his teammates at the front of the race. Sean Kelly attacked on the Oud Quermont and brought 13 other riders with him, including the likes of Phil Anderson, Charlie Motte, Adri van der Poel and Plankart himself. The group of 14 would eventually decide the race. Phil Anderson attacked with 13 kilometres to go and brought just van der Poel and Plankart along for company. The trio forged forward as Kelly desperately tried to chase them down as the race he would never win was slipping away from him again. Anderson attacked again on the final climb of the Bosberg, which dropped van der Poel. Approaching the finish, it was Anderson versus Plankert. Anderson started the sprint and remained in the lead until 250 metres to go before Plankert zoomed by to win by a couple of lengths as the local crowd cheered on the local hero. Plankert would go on to win the green jersey at the Tour that year to emulate the best achievements of both of his brothers in a single year and he went on to win the closest ever edition of Paris-Roubaix a couple of years later. Eddie Plankert, he's mad as a bag of cats. Well, wait till you hear this, John. I, I left the best part of the story out for you. The, the story goes that Eddie Plankert cycled past Phil Anderson in the last few hundred metres and uh, he, whatever mental state and physical state he was in as he was doing it, as he crossed the line and put up his arms in victory, he ejaculated into his cycling shorts. No! Explicit tag, here we come. Oh, God. That's... Um... We can just be thankful he wasn't wearing white shorts there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all the more reason never to wear white shorts. And uh, I, I got the story again. Just the the guy that um, I mentioned last week from this guy on Twitter, Ed NL, put me onto it, and uh, he he sent me a link to this kind of really ancient cycling forum, and um, it was actually uh, Benjo Masso who wrote um, a really great book called The Sweat of the Gods, was posting on this cycling forum. Uh-huh. And he, he mentioned this story. And this, it, I'll just read you out the quote that uh, Benjo Masso, he, he translated it from a book about Eddie Plankert. Into, it was written in Dutch, but Benjo Masso translated it into English. And it says, I saw to, this is Eddie Plankert talking. It says, I saw to my surprise that van der Poel couldn't follow us at the Bosberg. From that moment on, Phil Anderson tried everything. He accelerated. He made me several offers. He would have given his life if I would have let him win. He really couldn't understand why I didn't accept. But I said to my ex-teammate from Panasonic that we should go for it. He understood. The final was incredible. He kept on accelerating. One time I thought he is gone. And that was the only time in my life that I passed the limits. When you're completely worn out thinking you'll drop dead from fatigue, you reach another dimension. Suddenly it seemed I was floating over the road. It's a bit embarrassing to say it, but I came. And not a little bit. A hundred metres later, I was at Phil's wheel again, and I knew I would beat him. I had reached a divine state. <laughs> oh, dearie me. Yeah. I tell you, th- th- this is a new low for us. Oh, I, know. But he, I mean, he is mad as a brush. Because, I mean, he's got... Um... 
I mean, is he the only cyclist who's got a reality TV show? What was it, Life with the Plankers or something on uh, on VTM in Belgium? Yeah, it's fu- it's funny you say that because just recently I came across the story that Bart Wellens, the cyclocross rider, had his own TV show as well. Think of that what you will, but yeah, yeah, Eddie Plankert had his own TV show. But um, another another funny aside um, is the the guy who wrote um, the Eddie Plankert book. It's called. Or it, actually, maybe it's not specifically about Eddie Plankard. It's called the Plankard family because he, he did come from a, a a fine stock of cyclists. But uh, the guy who wrote that book was called, this is a great name, it's Iv- Ivan Halen. <laughs> <laughs> You're making this up. No, I swear I'm not making it up. And he, he made his name as a musician. And if you want to guess the instruments that he played... It's got, it's got to be uh, it's got to be the tuba or something the, the trumpet and the flute so in between blowing his own trumpet and playing with his flute he took a break from playing music and wrote this book about the Plankers he was also a columnist for Playboy by the way as well um, you, I couldn't make this up <laughs> this is the best one yet I mean, the comedy continues though because I mean we all remember when uh, Eddie won Paris-Roubaix yeah, um, and the, I think the closest finish ever was Steve Bauer second. Yeah, and it's my favourite. I mean, he's he's slightly disgraced now, but my favourite legatism of all time was when uh, you know Eddie Plankert won with possibly the worst helmet hair in history because he took off his <laughs> hairnet helmet and it looked like you know he, he, he had a small. I mean, it made Johan Museo look like a sensible hairstyle. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah, and Liggett, you know, he he turned to Paul Sherman and he just said. And poor Steve Bauer, he's got, you know, he's got to go back to the hotel room with only a masseur to comfort him. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, the connotations continue. But but like this is uh, as sad as it is. I looked this up on Google. This phenomenon <laughs> that happens to Eddie Plankert. I was very, I did it in work. I was very careful not not, not to have everybody peeking over my shoulder because they would have been like, Jesus, what the hell is this guy looking at on Google? But. Uh, it, apparently it's a thing. It's called a corgasm, <laughs> and I, I I looked it up in in um I looked the race up in an old issue of uh, Cycling Weekly that I had, and uh, th- there's a photo of Eddie Plankers with his hands up crossing the finish line, and I it is no lie to suggest that he is definitely standing to attention when he's crossing that finish line. This is uh, this is definitely the first ever after dark version of this week in cycling history. Yeah, um, he had a great career as well. Um, he won stages in the Tour, the Vuelta, and I think the Giro. Did he? Yeah, he did. And I, I have a little note here as well that he was um, the only Belgian since to have done that. Is Philippe Gilbert? He he uh, he um, has now won stages in all three Grand Tours and. Uh, um, Eddie Plankert was the last Belgian to do that, so it's 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 quite kind of a rare thing for Belgians to do. But um, yeah, like I said just just a minute ago, he came from a really successful cycling family, and I said it in the piece as well. His his two brothers, Willie, <laughs> no. and uh, and um, Walter, they uh, you know they they all won semi classics, and I, I I kind of think I have a little note here. I I don't really know for sure. I don't even know how you'd work it out, but I I think they're the most successful. Uh, cycling family when it comes to the classics I know there were there was other sets of brothers that um, like the Simons uh, yeah. Pascal and uh, Francois and uh, there was two others as well they I think each of those either wore the yellow jersey or won a stage in the tour and then there was uh, going back way back to the 20s and 30s there was the, the three sets of brothers Pelissier 
and they they were very successful in the Tour de France as well. But um, in terms of classics, I'd say yeah, I'd say there's very very few people to beat the Plankerts. And uh, there was another one actually, Joe Plankert, who is uh, Walter's son, so that would be Eddie's nephew. He he was quite successful in semi classics as well. I know he won Kern Brussel Kern one year. Um, so yeah, yeah, just kind of incredible for them to all come from the same family. And uh, I'd say Eddie Eddie probably was well, he he certainly was the most successful. He won Roubaix Tour Flanders and and the Green Jersey. And um, he he. Uh, that sorry, I, I just getting lost in my own notes here. The um, I just have it written down as the Panasonic jersey. I just thought that was a, a really really classic jersey that I really um like. I just thought it was one of the best ones ever. You know the Panasonic one that he wrote. Yeah, I love that. I mean that's that's right up there with the uh, the Peugeot jersey for me. It's you know it really evokes an era. It brings it brings loads of great riders to mind. Yeah. Um, sorry, I, just to go off on a tangent, I know. I, just for a change, I, I, I tend to do that. As long as it's clean, mate. Keep no, it no, clean. This, well, it depends what you mean by clean. This, 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 I have it written down here. I came across this story the other day about. I'm, uh, I'm this, sure you did, mate. <laughs> this this guy called Justin Jewell. Um, he uh, he recently won the opening European race of the season, the GP de Marseillaise, and um, it's it's a one day race around Marseille. It it, it kicks off. The, racing in Europe after the Tour Down Under and um, he, he, he won it but uh, just in, in looking up his, his kind of his backstory he, he's still quite young I think he's only 24 or 25 but he served three years in prison of a five year sentence for killing his own stepfather he, oh my his, God. His, his stepfather ha- apparently had in the story I read anyway he, he had been very um, abusive he was an alcoholic and he had for years had verbally and physically abused uh, Justin and his brother and their mother and uh, eventually one night he, the, the stepfather came in um, drunk and uh, started abusing them again and it just got all, all got too much and he, he beat him to death with a with a, some kind of uh, pole or, or a bat or something and um, yeah he, he pleaded pleaded guilty was was I suppose fairly leniently uh, given the, I suppose under the circumstances given three three years in, well he was given five years and he served three and now he's out and he's continuing his career as a cyclist and um successfully it would seem i just thought it was a a mad story and uh yeah just um so, so sorry the reason i actually had this in was um his uh again just going back to cycling families his 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 real dad um who died when he was less than a year old was his name was Pascal Jules and he was a teammate of Laurent Fignon. He, he I actually, remember Pascal Jules very well. Yeah, he won a stage in one of the the, the, the tours of Fignon one I think was probably the eighty three edition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I just I just uh, as a link to cycling families as well. So Justin Jules is is carrying on where his dad left off and you know like kind of an interesting story to follow. But yeah, he he seems to be doing well. And of course Gary Wiggins and Bradley, you know it's uh, it's a genetic thing. I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I think, you may have played your hand too early, I've no idea where to go with this show now, so I'm just going to shut up and we'll move on to uh, <laughs> one of my favourite writers, Laurent Jalabert. In 2001, Laurent Jalabert transformed himself into a King of the Mountains contender at the Tour de France. The previous winter, Jalabert had moved on from the Anse team, where he rode for nine years, over to the Danish CSC Tiskely team of Bjarne Rees. But Jalabert's time on Team Rees started off terribly, as he fell off a ladder early on in spring, while changing a light bulb. He fractured two vertebrae and missed the entire Spring Classics campaign. But the French favourite made sure he was back in form for the Tour de France. Having lost several minutes on the stage finish to Abduez, Jalabert was freed up to chase stages thereafter. 
annual polka dot jersey winner Richard Veronque was still dealing from the fallout of his eventual half-confession relating to the Festina affair and was not at the tour in 2001. Consequently, the King of the Mountains competition was wide open and Jalabert knew it. On stage 13, there were six categorised climbs and Jalabert got himself into the break of the day. He finished second on the first climb, a second category, which earned him 15 points towards the polka dot jersey. Then came four first category climbs worth 30 points each. Jalabert won them all and added a further 16 points to his tally for the day on the finish line at Plat de Day, which amounted to 151 points altogether. With more than a week remaining of the tour, Jalabert had taken the polka dot jersey and didn't score another point until the final day when he added just one on the only climb of the day. He ended the tour in the polka dot jersey and with two stage wins, including one on Bastille Day, for the second time in his career. He became just the third rider after tour legends Eddie Merckx and Bernardino to have won both the points competition and the King of the Mountains competition at the Tour de France. Afterward, Jalabert said the following about his achievements. I feel like an intruder in this polka dot jersey. I simply saw that I could take it, calculated how and where, and I took it. His manager Reese had kinder words. The two stage wins were impressive. Laurent rediscovered what it was like to be French and win at the Tour de France and was rightly swamped by media attention and the love of the French fans. My only regret is that it affected the rest of his race, but he still attacked in the mountains and managed to win the polka dot jersey. That showed what a classy rider he is. Rhys went on to say, He did not win the tour like Fignon or Eno, but he had the same class. Personally, I'd put him up there with Sean Kelly. He's one of the modern legends of the sport and a role model for anyone who wants to race. Now, Jalabert was part of that uh, Onsi team, which, you know, questions instantly leap, leap to the fore. But regardless of that, one of my favourite riders of all time. And, you know, you've got in the notes very similar to Sean Kelly. And dear God, he was. He was exactly the same kind of rider. Yeah, I, I mean, it, just in preparation, I, I did a bit of reading about Laurent Jalabert. And he says two of his heroes were... Bernardino and Sean Kelly, like you say, and uh, f- for me, I don't know whether I'm right or wrong here, but he actually looks very like Bernardino on the bike, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he obviously do- he doesn't look like Sean Kelly on the bike, but his Palmares looks very, very similar. Well, similar enough to Sean Kelly's. He, you know, he won the Vuelta. He he could only manage fourth in the Tour. Um, he he uh, he obviously he he's won uh, points competitions in the Grand Tours. He's won Milan San Remo, Tour of Lombardy. He he didn't quite ever win the Age Best on the Age. I think he came second one year. Mm-hmm. Um, he won Paris Nice a lot of times. Very very similar rider with a similar skill set. And um, um, like you say, he was one of your favorite riders. He was one of my favorite riders as well. He was kind of one of the first uh cyclists that caught my attention really because that's when I kind of started watching cycling was when he was just starting to. Be, become good mm-hmm. in, in kind of 93 94 although he was good before that um but um he he said um i, I saw an interview with him that he said that because uh, he, he won the green jersey in 1992 in the tour de france when he was quite young and he was you know he was um winning bunch sprints quite regularly but uh one, one of my earliest memories of the tour de france was in in 1994 when wilfred nelson crashed into the policeman that was no, taking no, a photo yes. And uh, Laurent Jalabert got caught up in that crash as well. And um, he, he said that ever since then, he he was scared of bunch sprints, as he would be, I think, only naturally. He became scared of bunch sprints and having chatted with his family, he kind of said, look, this maybe, you know, <laughs> I shouldn't do that anymore. And he, he kind of didn't and he stopped. Well, he didn't stop, but he, you know, if, if there was... Um, God, I, I, sorry, it's all just coming back to me now. In something I read there, it was some race, was it Perry Tours? Maybe at the end of 1994, he's seen sprinting for the finish. Um, he didn't win it. He came sixth or seventh. And actually, in the sprint at the end, you can see him with his fingers on his on his brakes 
because he's yeah. he's scared, you know, and and well, he admitted that. One of the iconic pictures is, I mean, the policeman broke his leg. The guy, I think, who was taking the picture. Yeah. But one of the the iconic press sequence of pictures afterwards has uh, Wilfred Nelson, you know, scars all over the place, looking like he has no idea where he is. Jalabert looking like he's been hit in the mouth with a claw hammer. I mean, real, real damage to his mouth. Yeah. And that Luke bicycle just in pieces. He was lucky to come out alive. Yeah, and like when you compare the two of them, I mean, I mean, neither of them were ever the same again, but for very different reasons. Like Nelson never recovered, and Jalabert was never the same rider, but but for the better, really. When you think about it, for his Palmeiras, I, I mean, they both just completely went different directions after that. That crash changed their lives effectively. And um, yeah, so Jalabert kind of changed his focus, and and, and the, the very next spring he, he won Paris Nice and uh, and Milan San Remo, and uh, actually that year he pr- pretty much won everything. <laughs> he won Milan San Remo, Tour Lombardy, Tour Spain. He won, he won loads of things in nineteen ninety five. That was the year he won. He, he he came closest he ever did to to getting on the tour podium, which was when he came fourth. But um, it was some, something else I thought was interesting as well. Um. To, to go back to being very similar to Sean Kelly, he finished second in the World Championships in 1992 behind Gianni Bugno. Mm-hmm. And, and he said at the time, uh, this was an interview about 10 years later, but he, he, he was talking 10 years later that he, he said he thought at the time that he, he wasn't too bothered. He was like, ah, second, you know, I'm delighted with that. I'll have loads of other opportunities to win the World Championships. So he, he didn't really, uh, you know, he didn't feel too disheartened at only getting a silver medal, but he, you know, that was the closest he would ever get, and that that's a big gap on his Palmeiras for a for a rider of his style, you know, like kind of like Sean Kelly, who also never won it, but you know, in the mold of like Paolo Bettini or uh, uh, God, who else? Um, well, he was very know. similar to Bunio, who actually, you know, that, oh, yeah, Bunio, yeah, that two in a row that Bunio did um, essentially saved his seasons those you know those years, and Jalabert having had. You know, he was a good sprinter. He probably did think he had, you know, the rest of his career to go for it again. Uh, mm. And I'm surprised he didn't get on a harder course. Yeah, yeah. He just, like, I know if you look down through the results, he never really uh, challenged. I think he might have got sixth or seventh one of the years. But um, something um, we should actually say as well, I know you said he, he, he rode for the Yonsei team, which is, you know, obviously dodgy. I'd say you could put in brackets wherever you write the name of that team. Um, his, his, his manager for so long... For nine years, he was on that team. Was Manolo Says, who's in the middle of this Operation Puerto uh, case that's kind of ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Says was in court um, speaking about Euphemiano Fuentes the other day. But so so Jalabert was part of that team, and actually one of the reasons um, there's a gap in his appearances at the World Championships was he wasn't he, he didn't get selected in 1999. And the reason for that was um, in the fallout of the Festina affair. He was quite central to the whole Festina affair. You know, he was French champion at the time. He was in the Tour de France. He was mm-hmm. the kind of the 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 patron of the day, whether he was in general or not. He certainly was in in that tour. And um, you know, he 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 abandoned that tour, and so did his team. Did his whole team? Uh, yeah, I think his whole team. Yeah. Uh, abandoned the tour, and um, the 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 fallout from that was that. Um, uh, you know, they started to get it, get it slightly heavier on, on the dope controls. And Jalabert, as I read today, he refused to subject himself to extra controls from the French anti-doping agency. And as a result, 
um, he he uh, he couldn't. Well, there was some loophole. He couldn't be sanctioned by the French because he was living in Switzerland at the time, and he actually had a Swiss racing license. So the French actually didn't actually have jurisdiction over him. So they couldn't enforce these doping tests. But so so I, I think if he had have raced in France, he could have gotten himself in a bit of bother. So he didn't. He stopped racing in France. He didn't ride the Tour de France in '99, and as a result of that decision, also he he didn't get selected for the French team for the World Championships as punishment or whatever. You know, he he, he didn't get uh, he wasn't allowed to ride for them. But you know, they kind of that all kind of got slowly got forgotten as Veronk started crying and forgive being forgiven and 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 it all kind of you know got shoved under the rug slightly. Um, he, he was back in the World Championships in, in 2000 and he, he was forgiven. I mean, the one thing that I really I don't like so much about Jalabert, although you've got to admire the way he did it, it was really clever, is I think he was the first of the non-pure climbers to opportunistically attack stages with a view to getting the, the uh, polka dot jersey. You know, yeah. he was never the best climber, but this going away on stages where he could garner enough points that when you go to the really high mountains, the climbers couldn't claw it back, became a style, you know, for probably a decade afterwards. Yeah, like I said in the piece that he he, he, um, he felt like an intruder in the polka dot jersey, because, you know, it's supposed to be the king of the mountains, you know, the, the best climber, and uh, he, I mean... He, there's no doubt he's not the best climber. He was never the best climber in the tour, but he, you know, he knows that. But like you say, he he took these opportunities, and again, like I said in the piece, he just in one day he hoovered. He he had some points already, but he in in that one day he he got enough points to to win the whole thing, and that was all he needed. And um, you know, he 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 didn't even need to hang on in the end for double points at the stage win. You know, he got most of his points in in the breakaway, and that was it. One breakaway, you know, and and you know, I think Richard Veronk had. Uh, Slightly pioneered that approach, although Veronk did tend to go. I, you know, Veronk came second one of the years. I can't remember which year it was. Was it nineteen ninety six, maybe? Um, but he, you know, he Veronk did tend to go for GC some of the time, and uh, but yeah, Chalabert certainly took what Veronk had kind of started and and really uh, hammered it home. And then it was actually I, I only mentioned two thousand and one in the piece, but in two thousand and two, Veronk was back. And the pair of them were kind of doing it, trying to go for the King of the Mountains uh, jersey. And Jalabert beat Veronk at his own game, essentially. And then, you know, Jalabert retired and Veronk went, went on to win two more anyway. But yeah, it's kind of, like, like you say, it's become, become kind of the blueprint. And it's it's lost it's lost a little bit of its charm, you know. You have guys like uh, Anthony Charteau winning it in recent years. I mean, you know, best climber, he, you know, he's not the best climber in any race. No, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it has taken away a little bit. I mean, I don't, I don't think you could blame Jalabert. You know, there's a jersey there to win, and he won it. Uh, I mean, if, and he's there to get publicity for his sponsor. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, he he, he did a job and he did it well, but uh, yeah, it's unfortunate it's kind of been reduced to this. I know they've tried to spice, and I, I guess it has worked in the last couple of years. They, you know, they added, uh, they they changed the rules to. Uh, to tilt it to towards stage finishes, so that people like Shelbert couldn't go on the attack throughout the day and ignore the finish, you know, crack before the finish or be overtaken by the GC favourites and still win. It's become a lot more difficult to do that. So in recent years, you know, Samuel Sanchez uh, won it. I can't remember what place he came in GC when he won. That was probably fifth or sixth or something. Uh, uh, Tom, Thomas Vockler won it last year. Okay, he he probably wasn't really going for the GC, but it's it's it, it, they have addressed it you know and uh, it, it has become slightly more interesting in the last couple of years 
Now, before we move on, you've got a really interesting stat in the notes about Wiggins. Oh, I do. Sorry, yeah. I, I worked it out a while ago. It just dawned on me there that um, uh, when I was writing all this stuff about King of the Mountains points, that Bradley Wiggins last year, he's the first ever Tour de France winner that has that, that didn't finish in the top 10 of the King of the Mountains competition. So, that's, I mean, that that's blown me away, but it also shows, you know, that laser-like focus that Wiggins and Sky had. You know, it was all about the Mayo Jean. And you know they they didn't give a toss about anything else. Well, well, I don't I don't even think it's that. It's it, you know it's just the it's indicative of the style. Like I don't think anybody that's going into the Tour de France gives gives a toss about the King of the Mountains jersey if they really think they can win the Tour. I, I you know I you know who who, who remembers Pokédex jersey winners except people like me you know. Sad I know that. Yeah, but uh, you know so I just think it was indicative of the style uh, that 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 he employed and he was never he was never really too bothered about being at the front of the race at any time you know he he, he uh, obviously he, he yeah yeah like you say he had this laser like focus and and he, he just he knew what he had to do and you know being at the front of a group to to hoover up third or fourth place in king of the mountains points just wasn't didn't you know wasn't on his mind whatsoever so he was conserving energy the entire time in the middle or or down the back of, of a group and you can visibly see see that a lot of the time you know he, he he was not at the front of the group of favorites a lot of the time and um you know it's you'd kind of think just by accident you'd find yourself if you're at the top at the front of a Tour de France going over mountains every day you'd think by accident you'd you'd get into the top 10 of the King of the Mountains but he he didn't and Chris Froome did Hmm. Now you've already got an Irishman in by uh, mentioning Sean Kelly so um, we'll move on to something that's a a particularly British obsession now Uh, and you've actually done a piece about time trialling well done mate In 1931 the UCI Road World Championships were run as a time trial the World Championships had been organised since 1921 solely as an amateur event. That remained the case until 1927, when a professional event was also contested in addition to the amateur one. Before 1931, the Road World Championships had only ever once before been organised as a time trial. That was one of the amateur-only editions in 1922 in Britain, won by David Marsh, and he was joined on an all-British podium in Liverpool by W.T. Burkill and Charles Frederick Davy. It is not surprising that the British chose to organise the 1922 event in this way, and it is also not surprising that they dominated it. This is because time trialling was pioneered and popularised by the British. In 1895, Thomas Bidlake is widely credited with organising the first ever time trial in the UK, and it was raced over the roundly imperial length of 50 miles. It was around this time that mass start road racing was banned in Britain due to complaints to local police about packs of cyclists taking over the roads. Thus, as a way around this ban and for cyclists to continue to compete against one another, the idea of a timed trial was born, where cyclists would race from one point to another individually and the cyclists with the fastest time would win. The British time trialling scene blossomed and time trialling became the staple diet of British cyclists. Thus, in 1931, when it was decided the World Road Championships would be organised as a time trial, the British were delighted as they were seen as the world's leaders in the discipline. Time trials had not yet made an appearance in any Grand Tour, where mass start stages were still favoured. The first time trial wouldn't appear in the Giro until 1933, and it was two years later still until the Tour adopted the discipline, because they realised French riders were actually good at it, so it would increase the chances of a home winner. So in 1931, the British actually had the favourite for the amateur title in Frank Southall. But, as Les Woodland recounts in his excellent book, Cycling's 50 Craziest Stories, the organisation of the timed event in Copenhagen was a disaster. Woodland writes, 
Excited crowds milled around the timekeeper so that he couldn't see the riders as they crossed the line. Their numbers were shouted in one language and then translated into others before they reached him. A writer for Cycling Magazine reported the following as an example of the disarray. A time was recorded against a competitor's number given as 53. About that moment, I had myself observed a rider crossing the line carrying the number 66, Almo from Italy. Three quarters of an hour later, an Italian delegate approached the timekeeper's table and for some moments completely monopolised the attention of the officials, whilst he claimed that Almo had arrived and that he had crossed the line one second after Henry Hansen, the eventual winner. After some minutes of heated discussion in French, Italian and Danish, the time previously recorded against number 53 was transferred to 66 and Almo was listed second in the amateur road championships of the world. What happened to number 53, T. Wanzrenried of Switzerland, I cannot say, as he is not shown in the finishing list at all. The British favourite Southall could only manage seventh on the day, over 15 minutes behind the eventual winner. Now, time trial is a British obsession has until recently, I think, um, spoiled our chances as general roadmen with a few notable exceptions, you know, Miller and Simpson, etc. But, you know, it's still the way that the vast majority of UK club cyclists get their racing done, and I I still kind of love it. Yeah, I I, I can't get excited about it. (laughs) I I kind of, I, I judge myself for not being able to get excited about it, but I, I just can't. Like, if there's a context, like if the, you know, if you're looking at, at the, the, the final time trial of a Grand Tour, or, or not even the final, any Grand, any time trial in a stage race, I, I can appreciate what's going on and, and, you know, taking into account the bigger picture of, of what it means. But just if there's a time, if, if all it is is a time trial, even the World Championships time trial and the Olympics time trial, I know, I know they're brilliant achievements, but I just the, the idea of sitting down and watching it on television for two hours, I just I, I can't get excited about a standalone time trial. See, you, you're like Scott, you're lacking the sophistication to appreciate its subtleties, mate. <sighs> Um, I, I tell you actually, seriously, why most people like time trials, particularly in Britain, is because they can associate with them. You know, not all of us can associate with climbing, you know, the, the 21 hairpins of Alpe d'Huez at the kind of speeds they do. Yeah. But um, it's summed up perfectly in that Greg LeMond phrase, you know, it doesn't get any easier, you just get faster. Yeah. So, you know, your man doing a 28-minute a 10 on some, you know, crappy dual carriageway in Britain, actually feels the same kind of pain that, you know, Greg LeMond or Miguel Indurain feel. He's just going 15 miles an hour slower, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, there is there is a sense of involvement, but it is a peculiarly British thing. I mean, particularly the, the kind of out and back ones, because there are time trials around the rest of the world, but they tend to be, you know, point to point, place to place. Yeah. The other obsession I've got with it is my tech head, you know, because the gear in time trial and has been fascinating since... You know, since day one, in fact, you know, when they were looking at light wooden rims and then you moved to, you know, in my era, you moved from, you know, a disc at the back to double discs to, you know, the Delta bike that's your turn. And then right through the kind of hour record in the, you know, the 90s, the, the development and technological progress was awesome, you know, based around time trial. And that, that's really the ultimate time trial is the world hour record, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I have it written there. Like, I know the, the world hour record doesn't have a context like it's a standalone thing but the context is its history you know like if Bradley Wiggins decides to do it now you know he he's directly competing against Eddie Merckx 
you yeah. know and that's the that's the the magic of the the hour records whereas if you have a world championships time trial in you know some place in switzerland and then you can't compare that against you know eddie Merckx or or fausto copy or or any of the other greats unless they run it over the same course you know but it, it... it's funny you mention that actually because i remember being deeply offended when they moved the grand prix de nation which was, you know, the unofficial World Time Trial Championship back in the day. Yeah. Because it was precisely that. There was that sense of continuity between, you know, Onkatil and Merckx and Eno and that sort of thing. So you're right, the context that makes it exciting is location and, and you know, direct comparison with the greats of the past. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's funny you mentioned the Grand Prix donation there. Um, the, uh, something else that Les Woodland said in that uh, piece, I actually I can't remember if it was in that book, Cycling's 50 Great Craziest Stories, or whether it was in a different article I read, but it was definitely Les Woodland that wrote it. He was talking about the uh, how time trials um, ended up in the Tour de France was because uh, the Grand Prix de Nation had already been invented you know, a couple of years before I think I said it was 1935 was the first time mm-hmm. trial in the tour, and the 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 GP de Nation had been around for a while, and French guys were winning it, and uh, you know Henri de Grange uh, looked at this and and thought, God, you know, and I think at the time, oh God, I'm putting myself on the spot, you know, I think Belgians were were winning the tour quite a lot, and uh, I think he was getting sick of it, and so he looked at the at this and he said, Jesus, you, you know, the French were actually good at, at this this time trialing thing let's stick it in and and he did and uh, I, i'm not quite sure if it worked i think it did um i know Ant- anton and manier won the won the first ever ever uh, time trial in the tour de france and he was french so yeah i suppose it did work but it, that that's the origins of of time trials in the tour was was from the, from that very race i remember actually we'll, we'll get back to the irish cyclist thing here because one of my favourites was, do you remember there was a time trial? I can't remember what tour it was. It might have been 1984, uh, where Fino beat uh, Kelly by, I think, it, it, two or it, it, thousandths of a second. Yeah, it was, and the timekeeping it actually didn't go down to thousands. Yeah. They just made it up on the spot. Yeah, it was less than a second, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the timekeeping compared to, you know, shouting numbers about it's improved now, because with these chips... You could conceivably see a tour one by half a second in the future. Yeah, it's funny actually. Um, um, something I put in show notes ages ago, and we never got around to talking about it. I can't remember what we were actually going through at the time, but I, I remember uh, thinking that the same thing. You know, timekeeping had improved, and uh, to to such an extent that, like you say, it goes down to thousands of a second. But do you remember in the two thousand and nine tour when Lance Armstrong was doing his comeback, and uh, mm-hmm. he he um. Uh, missed out on the yellow jersey after the team time trial by a couple of thousands of a second from Fabian Cancellara, and uh, you just wonder if the timekeeping hadn't hadn't been that accurate, and it was just you know a, a guy on the line with a stopwatch, and Armstrong did find himself in the yellow jersey, you know a week into the 2009 tour. I just wonder whether he would have been exposed eventually the way he is he he has been now, you know whether he would have gone on to win that tour and uh, and then remained too big to fall i don't know just maybe maybe uh timekeeping also led to his downfall it's funny actually because i mean timekeeping in a club scene is although it's much better now again with chips i couldn't possibly mention the club that i was a member of at the time but we organized a road race and there were about 10 of us with you know the clipboards to to get the finish and we thought we'd put a really hard course together for the club race yeah and it finished in a group of about 40 people. 
And uh, I couldn't possibly comment on whether every placing after sixth was just made up because nobody could count fast enough. <laughs> well, well, I mean, like it says in the piece, the World Championships organisers were no better. <laughs> now, um, I think we'll finish today because you completely blew my mind with the first story. <laughs> I mean, I'm still, I still have no idea how I'm going to edit that. Uh, but as we, you know, as we move forward, and I'm thinking, you know, we've got to have a wee piece for this week in cycling history, and the, you know, the main Eurosport show. Will I have it include the word ejaculate? Mm. <laughs> but in the meantime, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter on Irish at Irish Peloton, and uh, my email address is just mail at irishpeloton.com. I mean, people, people who listen to us will notice we're not as suave and collected as normal, and you genuinely blew my mind with that Eddie Plankert story. Mate. Well, you're, but you're not the only one blowing something, huh? <laughs> people who want to harangue me about the obscene podcast that I'm going to put out can uh, contact me on at WJohnGalloway on Twitter, and we'll be back in a fortnight with This Week in Cycling History.